outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your guide to the whitetail woods. Presented by First Light, creating proven, versatile hunting apparel for the stand, saddle, or blind. First Light. Go farther, stay longer. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. All right, welcome back to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by First Light and their Camo for Conservation initiative in which portion of every sale of their whitetail camel gear goes back to the National Deer Association, which is doing some really good stuff for deer and deer hunters. I'm actually out this week hunting on the Back 40, which the National Deer Association now owns and uses as a new hunter training ground, helping new hunters get into this thing. So uh, they're doing great stuff. I'm glad we're supporting them. Uh, That said, this week on the show, we are chatting with an under-the-radar big buck machine. This is a guy who some of the best deer hunters that I know say is one of the best deer hunters they know. He's someone who has previously resisted the spotlight. He's someone who has not shared his tactics or hunting strategies online before or in podcasts before. He's a person who has more 150-inch bucks on the wall than I have years of my life. All right. This is someone you've probably not heard of, but someone you're definitely going to want to learn from today. And this guy's name is Brad Davis. Brad's a realtor for Mossy Oak Properties, and he's a friend of the Lone Wolf Custom Gear crew over there. And he came by recommendation of a mutual friend of ours, Justin Hollinsworth, who's been on the show here today. And what we're going to do here shortly is talk to Brad and break down his approach to hunting mature whitetails and what makes his approach unique, I think. And the main thing we focus on here today is how he has simplified deer hunting. A lot of us overcomplicate deer hunting. A lot of us go in all these different crazy directions and try to pattern this thing and try to think about this thing and consider this factor and this factor and this factor. And Brad says, no, 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 no. Let's just look at the terrain and the topography. 
Think about where deer are going to eventually move through, and then let's wait them out. Let's get there with the right wind. Let's be bulletproof with wind. Let's know a couple key places, and let's hunt there smart over and over. And let's hunt the next one over and over. So he's got this, I don't want to say simple, but a, a uncomplicated but smart way to kill big old bucks. And he does it very well. So that's what we're going to talk about here shortly. I think it's a breath of fresh air in in a certain way. So I'm excited about this conversation. I think you guys are all going to learn something from Brad that's that's going to be a useful change of pace. But before that, what I want to do is take a quick second here to catch up with my buddy and right-hand man, Mr. Tony Peterson. Thanks for hanging there quietly while I rambled on, my friend. (laughs) Yeah, buddy. Um, But uh, what I want to do today is something I want to do more often throughout the year, which is take a little time here at the beginning, just catch up on what's going on in our hunting worlds so that folks can continue to follow our stories throughout the hunting season and what we're doing and learning as we go. Um, So before we chat with Brad, I got to hear, Tony, real fast, is there anything new in your whitetail world since that Minnesota hunt that you filled your tag and we talked about last week? Man, you know, other than my, one of my daughters killed a, uh, a little buck in Wisconsin, kind of that same week that I, I was hunting in Minnesota. So that was good. Yeah. And I've been taking my other daughter out and we have our eye. I, you, you know me, I'm not a, I'm not a one buck hunter. I'm not a buck namer guy. Like we don't, we don't hit list them really in the Peterson household, but we have this buck we call goofball for obvious reasons. You know, he's, he's a deer that just, I photographed him this summer and started getting pictures of him and he's got just a four point side. He's just a big woods, two year old. And the other side has four points, but it comes back over his head and it's real messed up. (laughs) And my working theory on this is last year, this daughter who I'm hunting with, she hit a buck and we lost it too far forward. I got a picture of him a month later. So I know he made it. And now this buck shows up as a two year old and he's got a really wonky one side, which would kind of correlate with where, you know, the, the opposite side of where she hit this buck last year. So I'm thinking this is probably that deer. And he <laughs> has been crazy consistent. So we went we went last weekend and hunted him. And we I don't know about what you've been getting out there in Michigan, but we've been getting a lot of southeast wind. Yeah. And I don't set yeah. up a lot for southeast wind. So I, Who does? I had a backup blind for this dude. I had a backup blind for this deer and I was like, every other sit after this, we can probably make the spot I want to go to work. But that, that first night I was like, we can't do it. We got to go in. And this is kind of an experiment. We went in, didn't see anything. And I'm like, I feel like I made a big mistake. Like, I think that that buck was bedded too close. I, I, I think I pushed it and we blanked four sits. I mean, we were like, if we saw a squirrel, we were stoked. And so that's kind of been my hunting life other than taking this, this new guy out here close to the cities. And so I haven't seen a deer while hunting in, I guess, five or six sits. So I'm kind of like <laughs> itching to make something happen here. Yeah. That can be the story this time of year. It can be feast or famine. Yeah. That's for well, sure. and, I mean, you know me, dude, I'm like, ah, the lull isn't real hunting, hot weather, do whatever. And then now like, there was a full moon during that weekend when I was out there with my daughter and I was like, gosh, maybe I've been wrong this whole time. Like (laughs) maybe the lull is real. Like, you know how it is. You second guess everything when you can't even put a a doe or a scrapper in front of you, but it it is what it is. So, well, I've been seeing the opposite, Tony. 
So I've been I've been a person who's always like, ah, you know, you want to avoid those warm weather days or at least don't go to your best areas on the warm weather days, so on and so forth. Um, but I actually, um, you know, have moderated on that a little bit. And I was proven, and you were proven right, kind of, on what I saw here recently, which has been surprising. Um, so... Let me give you a quick update on my hunting world. Hold on, here. hold on. Did you just say that it was surprising that I was right? Yeah, that's what I said. <laughs> Did, well, hold on. Didn't you just kill a big buck in a morning in the early season? Like I said, uh, no, I'm just kidding. I uh, and and now you're uh, seeing big bucks in conditions that uh, you just didn't think were going to happen, but I said would happen. You know what, Tony? We all have grown over the years, and <laughs> and and we're slowly becoming more wise. And um, experience <laughs> is the best teacher, right? It sure is. So, what are you seeing? Um, yeah. So here's here's what's happening. So as we talked about, I don't think we talked about last week, but a few weeks ago, we were talking about kind of our our upcoming hunts and stuff. And I told you the story of the the main buck I'm after in Michigan, and I am a one buck kind of dude. And I do name the buck I'm after usually. Um, so I've got this deer I call the wide nine and he is a buck that I have had four years of history now with, which is the longest I've ever been able to keep tabs on a buck in Michigan with before. And, uh, so, you know, I started getting pictures of him again this year. He survived. He showed up in the summer, uh, cool deer, a lot of encounters. I know a lot about what he does usually. I had a pretty solid idea of like where he beds on these properties I have permission on. Um, so I thought I had him pretty well dialed. The night before opening day, though, I wanted to see if I could get some better, like just some really recent intel. Like, let's see if he's doing what I think he might do or if he's if he's moving in daylight somewhere yet. Um, as you mentioned, like it's hot. It's been, it was very hot spell there at the beginning of October and just preceding that. So conditions weren't great, but I still, you know, Anything's possible, right? So I thought maybe I can learn something the night before the season that will give me either the confidence to, to move back into something that maybe I wouldn't usually with this weather, or I'll confirm like, okay, play it safe, do some more observation. So there's a hill that I can access from the road that usually if I get up on this hill, I can glass down into one of these properties. And there's a power line that stretches off kind of heading southeast, and I can Basically, that, that power line runs along the southern border of one of the main zones at this buck beds. And then there is a creek that runs to the northeast that kind of forms the border of the north border of one of these bedding zones. So from a specific location on this hill, if I get there, I can see down that creek a little bit to the north side, and I can see down that power line to the south side, and I can kind of bracket either side of this bedding zone. So it's been a place historically, like if I can get in there and glass from this zone, you can learn some good stuff. Well, the problem this year is that it's standing corn and you can't see anything from the hill because it's standing corn. So I got to thinking, man, I really want to see what's happening. How can I figure this out? And what I decided to do is I actually brought a ladder out to this place, walked the ladder along the road and then walked into the standing corn from from the road. So people were driving by me on this road. There's like a dude in camo carrying a huge silver ladder. Um, and I got into this spot, put the ladder up in the standing cornfield and stood up on top of the ladder. And from that vantage point, it was perfect. It had actually worked. Like I could see down the power line. I could see not as far down the creek as I was hoping. There's still a lot of leaves on, um, but I could see a little ways. So I'm, I'm down there. I'm watching deer. I'm seeing deer move. I actually saw 
the number two buck in this area on his feet in daylight the night prior to opening day on like a 78 degree day. So I'm thinking, geez, I can't believe it, but there he is. He's on his feet way, way back in this property, um, hitting a little green field. And as I'm watching him, I notice something white, like down beneath me, like close. And I pull my binos down and I look down at the bottom of the hill. And at the bottom of the hill, it's just this thick, tall, grassy stuff. Um, there's historically maybe like some does. There'll be like a doe family group maybe that hangs out down there and then heads up to this little food plot I've got up there um, further down. But um, it's not a spot that I've ever, you know, paid much attention to other than, you know, and there's probably a doe or two in there. Well, I look down there and here's the wide nine, like at the base of the hill right beneath me, standing up out of that tall grass. So there's standing corn all around him and then this tall grass. But then there's also like, you know, houses in the road up there too. He was bedded right up close to the road in the house. House kind of areas there. And he stands up and I watch him, you know, walk through this tall grass heading towards that food plot. And then a truck pulls across the road, a big semi and starts backing into one of the houses across the road, making tons of racket and ends up spooking every deer around. All the deer go running away. But I saw him in this place. It was like a wild place to see him hanging out. I've never seen him in there before. Um, so that was a very interesting aha moment. And I'm wondering to myself, was that a fluke? Or is this something he's doing more often now? Like in the past, he's always bedded, you know, this zone I was telling you about that's probably 400 yards to the east of this, back in the core of these properties, like the core of the square mile is usually where he beds. Um, so it's an interesting aha. I hunted that following night, umping night, in a spot that's kind of right in between where I saw him and where he usually beds. Um, there's an oak tree dropping a bunch of oaks and there's a little food plot tucked in some grass there. And it's this great transition. That's usually tight to where he's bedded. Uh, didn't see him that night. The next night I hunted a different spot. That's kind of farther North of there. And this was, this is one of my aha moments. I did not see him, but I did see a three-year-old and a buck that's three or four. Um, on their feet half an hour before dark and it was 83 degrees that night. And I saw these two like mature, you know, anything over three in Michigan is a pretty rare deer. So here's a three-year-old and a three, maybe four-year-old buck on their feet on an 83 degree night, um, you know, moving. So great to see that. I, and I, what I did for both of those hunts with that hot weather is I set up in a place, you know, this low impact. I went to very low impact locations. Like I'm not going to be risky and push into my best stuff, but I set up in places where it could happen and I could see a long ways. Like I, I wanted to learn. So those are kind of like observation sets with the possibility of something coming together, but mostly, you know, being in the game, but really learning something is how I approach those first two hunts and interesting stuff. So those are the first two nights. Now, after that, I was going, or what I'm doing now is I'm hunting on the back 40, not myself hunting. I'm mentoring two new hunters on the back 40 property. Again, we're doing a project kind of recapping folks on what's going on there on the back 40 since we gave it to the national deer association and the story of these new hunters that have been using it. Um, so I'm out there helping two guys having a good time so far, not a lot of deer activity out there yet, but I'm hopeful it's going to get better here soon. But last night, I hear from a friend who is able to be in the area and can see this grassy area as you drive by um, 
the Y9 was back in that grassy pocket again last night. So he was spotted down at the bottom of this hill in that tall grass, the same place I spotted him the night before the opener. So now two nights of the last five, he was spotted bedded in this tall grass right up by the road. So it's, it's very interesting. And he was moving in daylight. So twice now in the first five days of October, well, one was the day before October, daylight up by the road in this tall grass. Um, and now we have this big cold front that hit. And now I'm thinking, okay, I can start hunting him again once I'm done in the back 40. So I can hunt on October 8th is the first day I'll, I'll be able to hunt myself again. And so now I'm thinking, do I hunt him the way I thought I was going to hunt him back in the core where he usually beds? Or do I think this is not a fluke and he's now a five-year-old buck, doesn't like to be around other deer, wants to, he's got this little pocket that there's never, like I never go in there. There's never people in there. Um, is that a new thing I need to start thinking about? So that's where my, I'm right now. It's like thinking this whole thing through and like, is there a way to hunt this deer coming out of this grassy pocket? When, so when you say that like historically that grassy pocket has only, you know, maybe a doe family, not, you know, not been a real big buck bedding spot. Has, has that been consistent with whatever crops were planted there? Has it been consistent with beans and corn or whatever's been in there? So, yeah, I mean, you know, it rotates corn beans every other year. And I'm able to watch this grassy area quite a lot because it's, it's, you know, it's right along that hill where I always go glass from. And I've, you know, for years talked about trying to glass in here when I'm after different bucks and stuff. And so it's not like I haven't been able to watch this grassy pocket in the past. Um, there was one other deer, there's one other buck that used it. Um, and it was that really, really big deer I killed Frank, um, like five years ago, but that was just during the rut. What he would do is he would he would lock down with a doe and then like rodeo her into this pocket and then stay with her like all night. And then every morning I would see him coming out of there with that doe. Um, that's the only time I've seen a buck really use that area in the past. Not to say it hasn't happened. And I, yeah. I certainly could have missed it. Um, I'm just, I'm just what you, curious what do you think about that. Well, when you say, you know, you've got this kind of grassy soil, grassy pocket in standing corn around it. I mean, that's like such a recipe for big buck bedding. Like it's yeah. especially early season stuff when that's, you know, that corn gets picked, that's a different deal. But I've seen that I, I was chasing a buck in Southern Minnesota a while back that was betting in a situation like that some, and he was a giant and it, it happened in the summer. It happened in the early season and then it was done. And I just think it was like one of those situations where he was catching the wind and avoiding the bugs. And, you know, when they're kind of walled in with corn like that, they love those spots. But, you know, if you've observed it a lot and they just don't historically use it, I just, it just, I wonder why. Yeah. I, I don't know the answer to that. And I mean, it, when you look at it with fresh eyes and if I were to look at it, you know, brand new, I'd be like, well, yeah, this doesn't seem like a bad deal at all for him. He's got us, you know, it's, it's probably maybe three acres, maybe something like that. Maybe three acres of this like tall, you know, it's probably over my shoulder height of just grass and brush and crap. And then it's surrounded by standing corn and then there's houses along the road. But the thing is like, you know, it's, you know, where he stood up when I saw him, he was probably a hundred yards from the road, hundred yards from like houses. Um, so he's right there, you know, close to people. But um, for me to get back to hunt him, you know, the way I have to access his property 
he's not going to see me because he's down in that grass bedded down. But if I were to go through with any kind of southerly wind, um, he would certainly win me with any kind of southerly wind um, coming the way I would usually go into this property. So it's interesting. It changes well, things up a little bit. Haven't you been having a bunch of southern, southerly winds? Yeah. Yeah. So that, is that okay. why he's there? <laughs> certainly could be. Huh. I mean, do, I wonder though, like, do you think bucks are that smart? Like, do they think like, well, I know this dude hunts me and I know this dude, uh, you know, comes in this zone a lot of ways and I'd be able to smell him with a southerly wind. Like, are we giving them too much credit? Is he, or, or maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I don't know, man. If you're, if, you know, 95% of your year was spent just avoiding predators and one of your worst predators comes in that way a lot and the wind would tip you off, you'd probably be clued into that. Yeah, hey, man. And I got to say, if, if I was, if I was an old man and if the last three of my best friends were all killed by one person, I would probably get really good at avoiding that one person. Yep. <laughs> That's been his life, his last yeah. four buddies. <laughs> so he's uh, he's had some bad stuff happen to his life. Do you, his do you have a way to watch that buck in the morning to see if you could catch him coming back so you'd know he was in there? Yeah, and that's what I'm actually going to plan on doing is I'm going to get up super early and try to get out to this spot where I can get on this hill. I think I can do it without – we'll have to see what the wind's doing. Um, but if I can get to this pocket – up on this hill and not have my wind blowing down into it, uh-huh. I think I could watch it. So I'm going to try to do that the morning of the 8th, which is the day, the next day I can personally hunt and try to get out there and watch it and tell for sure. Cause that's my big question is like, we have this big cold front that came through. So we're going to have like, these are the best conditions I've had yet this year. It's going to be like 35 degrees cooler than it was. And, um, so I think it's worth taking a good hunt at him, you know? Um, yep. If I had not seen him twice up in this grassy pocket, my good hunt would have been, you know, way back where he usually beds, tight to that stuff. Like, I've thought about there's some oaks dropping in this little woody pocket next to his usual bedding area. I thought about diving into that. Or I've got this little green field way back there that he also frequents that's on the other side of his bedding area. I thought about going in there. Um, But now I'm wondering, like, geez, do I hunt up front? But the problem is, like, if I hunt up front, it's like a – it's either going to be great because he's there or it's going to be like a completely lousy hunt. Cause if he's not there, there's nothing else there. And it's just going to be sitting there watching people play with their dog or walking the kids, that kind of thing. Man, when you get a buck like that in early like this and you see him in a spot, I, my personal opinion is get after him right now. Cause that pattern's probably going to die and I wouldn't overthink it. I mean, I've, I've killed a few bucks in the beginning of October, first two weeks of October like that, where you just pick them up and you're like, I saw him here. What's going on? And then you go in and kill him the next chance you have. And yeah, I, w- I wouldn't do the Kenyan overthinking thing here. I just bonsai in there and kill that bastard. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't appreciate that you're labeling this as the Kenyan overthinking thing, but, uh, I'll, I'll gloss past that and just say I like the idea of killing him. So yeah, go kill him. I got, I got a question for you. When yeah. you when you walk out on the back forty now after not being there, you know, I mean, you spent a crazy amount of time there for a couple of years, mm-hmm. and then now you go back do this mentor thing. Like, do you feel a sense of like nostalgia when you walk in there? Man, is it, like, I really is it do. big time? Yeah, big time nostalgia, and like a proud daddy kind of thing, like a proud dad. Like you go out there and you should see, 
You should see what it looks like now, Tony. It's so much better than when you and I were hunting there. Like the fields, you remember the, I mean, in the year you came and hunted, they were dramatically better than the first year. Mm-hmm. Um, but now there is switchgrass like up to my face all over the place. There's all sorts of native vegetation. I mean, it's, there could be deer bedded on every square inch of that place. Mm. It looks, it looks like a Drury Outdoors, Iowa property now. Wow. It's pretty impressive. Now we hunted the last two nights and saw just fawns. So it was weird. Um, I was surprised by that. So I, I do, I, I have like questions about what's going on. Um, there's tons of acorns everywhere out here right now. Like the white oaks are raining acorns. Um, and we don't have white oaks on this property really anywhere that I know of. So mm-hmm. I'm a little worried that they might be like sitting in the timber somewhere eating acorns. And that could be what's happening. Um, but the first two Pro- days we kind of had lousy weather. Yeah. The first day was like 85. The second day was like torrential downpour. So because of that, we stayed on the front half of the farm, like the safer part of the farm. Mm-hmm. And we saved the back half, like the best stuff for the second part. When this cold front hits, it's now going to be like 20-some degrees cooler and great. So we've got this back half of the trip with great conditions. And now the back half of the farm is, you know, untouched. So tonight we're going to go into a kill spot and, and hopefully one of them will get a shot. Nice. Yeah, man. No- this has been a, I don't, I don't know. I, this has been a weird year. I, I was telling my wife the other day, I'm like, I feel like I'm either hunting in beach weather or a downpour and there's nothing else yeah. every day. And it's this bad wind and the acorn thing. I mean, it's, I, I've heard from people all across the country and I, I've definitely dealt with it myself in Minnesota and Wisconsin. The acorn situation this year is wild. Yeah. A lot of mast. And like you said, it's not a one-off thing. Like everyone seems to be seeing it. Everyone I've talked to at least has been seeing it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that changes things up. It makes your typical, you know, crop fields or little food plots and stuff, just not dead, but not quite what they usually are when they can be back in the timber and the cover eating candy, you know? Yep. So we'll see. Um, I'll hopefully have an update for you next week or the week after on this whole wide nine thing and the back 40 thing. These two guys are trying to kill their first deer with a bow. Um, and I've been, I've hunted with them the last two years in a row, kind of helping them on their journey. So this is hopefully going to be that final step. Um, be pretty cool if that came together. What, so. what are they open to? What's where, where's the bar set for those guys for what to uh, shoot? Any, yeah. Any adult deer that gives them a really good, safe shot with a bow. So that could be a doe, that could be a forky, anything like that. They would be thrilled with. Nice. So, that, that's yeah. that's like a fun way to hunt. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to be doing yeah. that next week down in Oklahoma. That's a fun way to hunt. Yeah. So so give us the 30 second uh, rundown of what hunt you've got coming up. 30 seconds because we got to shut this thing down and All get right. right on. I am heading down to Oklahoma to hunt public land with Steve Ranella. <laughs> <laughs> and we are bow hunting deer and it is going to probably be a disaster where I'll be back out on my own by the end of <laughs> October, <laughs> but maybe not. We'll see. It was a good run, Tony. I'm glad you were able to work here for a little bit. We're going to miss you, but uh... <laughs> no, you guys will have a blast. I'm excited to hear about how it goes. Um, I'm sure you guys will have fun. I hope so, buddy. Uh, okay. So. With all that said, Tony, thank you for giving me the rundown. Thanks for giving me some thoughts and feedback on uh, 
my hunting stuff going on here. Let's do this again soon so we can kind of keep tabs on what's happening. And now we got to talk to Mr. Brad Davis, who's got some some good thoughts, some kind of grounding advice. He takes someone like me who's like all over the place, and I think he kind of brings us back to earth and says, hey, just focus on a couple core things and do them well. That's what we're going to focus on here today. So let's get to Mr. Brad Davis. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild, but searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day into today because trust me there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth all right here with me now on the line i've got brad davis brad thanks for taking time to do this thank you so i understand this is your first podcast you've done uh so thank you first off for for being willing to to step out on a limb here and talk about this stuff 
Um, but I got to tell you the story of how I, I heard about you and why I'm, you know, why I want to reach out. I was listening to a conversation that your buddy Justin Hollinsworth was having, and Justin's made the podcast rounds. He's he's been out there talking to a bunch of people recently. So so Justin was on my mind, and he was talking about some of his different, um, you know, hunting styles and influences. And he brought up the fact that he has this buddy, and he's got a buddy who has this goal of killing 50, 150-inch bucks before it's all said and done. And I heard that. I was like, geez, that is an ambitious guy. And then he said that this friend of his has already killed 38 of them. And I thought, okay, this guy's not only ambitious, but he's really getting it done. So I reached out to Justin after I listened to that podcast. And I said, who is this friend of yours? And he said, well, Mark, that's Brad Davis, and you should talk to him. So, so here we are, Brad. We are talking, and I got to ask you about that goal. Is that is that a goal you are still actively chasing? Oh, yeah. I think when you're younger, you make goals or you, you kill a few big deer, and you think, boy, I'm pretty young. You know, you think, I could probably get this done. But as the years go by, you start, you probably up the, up the ante a little bit, and you start letting stuff walk that normally you would shoot would have shot younger years, but mm-hmm. no, I'm still, I'm still think it's a, it's attainable. There were several years I was able to kill two a year, you know, here in Illinois. And that, yeah. that, that really flattens the curve, that but uh, he was wrong. I think I'm, and I might've told him wrong, but I've only killed 37. So he was, he's <laughs> one off. Okay. Not not too but much. Yes, still, that's still a goal. Yeah, I'd like to kill I'd like to kill fifty over one fifty. What's the tell me about like your goal process? Like how, how why have goals like that? How does that keep you focused? What does that kind of how does that fit into the way you approach your hunts? Well, you know, first of all, I wanna I wanna let everybody know I'm probably luckier than a lot of people on where I get to hunt, you know, where I'm in central Illinois, there's big deer, you know, you just, you get into these guys hunting the Southern States or the Eastern States and they, they think you're nuts, but you know, you let two or three one fifties walk in a year and then, you know, you're trying to kill a one sixty. So, or a one seventy or, you know, or whatever, whatever you've got, but you can only kill what's on the property. And, and growing up here in central Illinois, I, I've been pretty fortunate to be able to be around big deer, you know, and you kind of lose sight of that when you're, when you live here and you're in the middle of it, you lose sight of that for the guys that are on the out east or out in the south. You just think, well, this is, how are they not killing 150s? Well, they don't kill them because they're not there. I mean, it's, you just got to remember where you live. Yeah. Was there a, any kind of major like threshold for you when you as you've been going up over the years as you've been targeting older deer or bigger deer was there any kind of moment where all of a sudden you realized oh if i want to kill that next tier deer that's a whole new ball game like this is a whole new thing i need to figure out where was that shift for you is it like when you went from shooting those first few young bucks to all of a sudden trying to shoot three or older bucks or was it when you you know is it a certain size deer when was that big jump in your experience? Well, I just think it's a progression for a lot of guys. When you're around, when you've got the quality of deer and you're around good deer, the more you're around them, the more you, you settle down, 
You don't get, you know, you don't get so wound up every time you see a 150 or bigger. Mm-hmm. And there's probably times that you let deer walk that you, at the end of the season, you think, hey, I probably should have shot him, but that's just part of it. And I've, I've never been too, too caught up in eating tags. It's kind of been more about mm-hmm. if I don't want to put a deer on the wall or something I'm, I'm happy with, just let it go. And yeah, it's, there's years it pays off and there's years that somebody else kills the deer the next year. You know, you just, it's just a crapshoot. You just can't, you can't, uh, you can't make sure that every deer survives every year. And there's been deer I let pass one year thinking, boy, he'll be a dandy next year. And two weeks later, you get a picture from a neighbor, somebody's killed him. So, mm-hmm. but as far as, uh, I don't know, I think after everybody probably gets into the same, when you kill a half a dozen 140s, then you, you know, you just keep moving up the ladder. You think, well, I want to kill a 150, then I want to kill a 160, then you want to kill a, you know, and everybody wants to kill a 200, but it's, it's just a needle in a haystack to find a 200. So yep. I don't know. I just, I just think a guy's got, you got to have, you got to have some patience and not get too caught up in this. I don't know. Social media to me has, has changed the way a lot of guys, they want to promote themselves. And that's, that's not me. I'm, but guys that want to promote themselves, they want to kill big deer every year and it, whatever it takes is what they do. But I just, I just enjoy, I actually enjoy hunting more than the killing. I mean, and that's probably part of the reason I don't mind letting 150s or a 160 walk is because as soon as you kill that deer, then you're on to the next one. And that deer is gone from the herd. You know, he can't grow. He can't get bigger for the next year. So I think patience and the fact that after you kill a certain number, you just kind of can get to the point that you can let them go. But there's really was nothing that I can say, hey, you know, this is really what triggered it. I I've just always loved chasing the, you know, the bigger mature bucks. So, so what's the goal for this year? Do you have, are you, are you, well, I've got two bucks that, deer or, or yeah, what? I've got two bucks that both made it last season. One of them's on a personal, a piece of ground. That's a personal property that my own farm. And I let him go last year. We thought he was probably, he's a clean 10. thought he was in the one sixties last year. Let him go twice, videoed him and, and he is, he did survive. He, he made uh-huh. it. Uh, I did not find his sheds. He, I don't know where he went for the winter, but I never found a shed. But he put on a couple of stickers and a, an 11th point this year. So he's a little bigger. Not, not huge. I mean, he's, he, might, he might be 170. But I got another buck that's, I think he's a young buck. But man, has he got, he's got about everything you'd want. He's got junk and he's got tall tines and I don't know if he survived or not. I had pictures of him in late January before he shed. So I know he made it that that long that that far, but I don't know since I've not got any pictures of him. But it's a small plot, it's like a four acre piece. Um, and it's maybe he'll show up again this year late season. Because he didn't show up there till late last year till December. And I'm pretty Okay. I've I've seen that happen a lot of times. You know, deer will show up late season, and the next year the same thing. They won't show up till late season again. So that's my two. That's the two target yep. bucks I've got, and uh, we'll see what happens. The game begins at the end of one season. This, the next season starts. Yeah. So with that, uh, that home buck, the bucks, the buck that's on your personal farm, um, what does that game look like? at this point so i guess two parts of this question one what did you do 
from the end of last season until now to prepare yourself for this. And then I'm curious, where's your head at like right now? The Illinois season just kicked off a handful of days ago. Um, where do things stand now in that? That would be my two-part question. Well, first of all, I've got my farm this year is all standing corn. And I've only gotten pictures of him on two different cameras, one time each. Last year, and I always tell guys to pay attention. If you see a mature buck moving through the woods or you see him bed, pay attention to the wind, the conditions. Pay attention to why he's where he's at that day. And he was bedding up next to another fence. He was right up against He, My back was laying against the fence last year. And he's still, and that's where he's bedding this year. He's, he's back there now. But it's an old pasture that I would have to cross an old pasture and I'd have to have an east wind. Well, we don't get hardly any east winds here. So I'll let it go. Um, I'll just let it ride a little bit here. I'm not, I know some guys can, some guys don't care. And I, and I, I mean, I'm friends with Andre DeQuisto and Cody. Those guys are aggressive. I, I am not aggressive. I'll be the first to tell you I'm, I'm more a sit back, let it play out type type hunter, and I don't use sense. I don't use grunt to. I don't use anything. No rattling antlers. I mean, I just don't. And um, I've seen pluses and minuses of all that stuff, but I just don't. I don't. I play the wind 100%, and I just think um, that buck has been there that long. Well, he's grown up there, and. Does he leave? Yeah, he probably does. He probably gets to the neighbors. But um, he's made it this long, and I, I I'm feel confident of where he's staying, and where he's staying is what I consider my sanctuary. So I'll let it play out until my conditions get better um, as far as I got to get the corn out. And they're, they're picking corn here now, but it's got to come out for me to be able to access that, my farm very well at all. So it's just patience, and I, I know some guys really struggle with that. You you know where he's at, that sanctuary yes. area. And so yes. I'm assuming you, you knew that based on what he did last year. So yeah, did you go in the off-season? Did you pre-hang anything? Do you have anything set up already, or are you going to be going Actually, in yes. in-season, hang and hunt? No, I pretty well am on property. I pre-hang, pre-sets. It's so much easier, um, especially when you're going in with camera equipment and and video and stuff, but most all my, 90% of the time on my own property, it's all preset. And I do all my, I do most of my pruning and scouting and stuff in, in March and February, March. And it's, and I hung, um, that's when I hung a stand for him for, for this year. So um, I shouldn't say, I don't even have a stand hung. I've got steps, I've got it pruned, everything's ready to go, but, and I'll slip in. I normally go in there with a mower, a bush hog, and I haven't done that. In fact, I was going to do it today. It's raining here today. Now, my goal is to get it done here before the weekend. And I'm going to get the stand hung. I'll go in there with a the bush hog and make all the racket and the noise with the tractor and the bush hog mowing. And I'll just, I'll put the, the stand on the tractor and then I just, I'll just get off, hang the stand and uh, make sure everything's okay. And then I'll just get out of there. But yeah, I, I'm pretty patient on that kind of stuff. I don't get, I don't get too rambunctious as far as running deer around. I, I never have. But there's there's so many different ways guys can kill big deer. I mean, it's not it's not I've said forever, it's not magic. I mean, you just you just think about a buck that's walking through the woods during the rut. How many trees 
in a day could a hunter be sitting in, have the right wind, and kill that buck? There's thousands of trees, <laughs> you know, and it it's yeah. I'm not trying to dumb it down, <laughs> but point. there is literally in a 24-hour span or a, a say a 12-hour day, daylight hours. There's probably thousand trees that a guy could be in that a buck walks by and you could kill him. So I, I don't get too caught up in trying to make anybody else believe I'm doing anything magical. It's a lot of it's persistence and patience. Yeah. So this setup you've got that you're going to go mow the trail to and throw the stand up there. Uh, can you break down that spot? Why is that the spot you think you can get him killed? How's that going to work? This is a pretty, this piece of wood, it's a pretty square woods. It's got a creek that runs through it. And what he does is he, he stays on the north side of the creek almost, well, every time I've seen him do what he does to go to his bed, he's on the north side of the creek. It's a jungled mess. There was a tornado went through this woods years ago and there was a bunch of hedge trees on that side of the creek. And they are a jungled mess. You can't, and there's no really no good place to even hang a stand in there. It's such a mess. But he gets in there and he's bedding along the, he's got a, an old pasture. Well, there's cattle in the pasture, but he puts his back to that pasture. And he's laying with basically his back on the fence. And um, you can't, you can't really access it except across the pasture. There's no way to get through the woods to it. You got to come across the pasture. And I'll just, I'll have to wait till there's an east wind or I'll probably, I'll probably try to cheat it a little with a southeast because I saw what he did both times last year when he, where he betted, he, he, he went in there with a southeast wind. So that's probably what I'll wait on. And when I get the right conditions, I'd like to try to get in there before, you know, the first part of November, before they really start rolling running around a lot. I try to like to try to get in there while he's pretty consistent, stay in there. But this, this farm actually wanted, before I bought it, there was an older fellow that owned it and he actually mowed a trail around the inside rim of that woods. And it was because he cut firewood. So it gave him access. It's just like a, it looks like a, just a mowed trail around this inside perimeter. And he did it so he could access for firewood. Well, he, had, he started letting me hunt years ago, and I noticed the deer paid no attention to him. I could be in there in a tree stand, and the deer paid no attention to him when he'd come around there on his John Deere side mm-hmm. beside. So I bought the farm, I think it was 17 years ago, and I've continued to mow that trail for a couple of reasons. I think it, it gives deer, especially bucks, they get that, they know where the the danger zone is and they know where they're safe and they they can use that little buffer area that I mow they use it as what I would just it's just a it's just a spot that they know hey this is I can get from here to here I feel safe once I cross this line I know I may be in danger but it, it also gives me access that's the big thing I've got access in and out of there I use an electric bike and um, it gives me access I'll go in and mow it short I'll pick up all the sticks, you know, get all the brush out of the way, but then I can access it myself. But for this particular deer, it's probably going to be coming across the pasture. I'm probably not going to be using this mowed trail, but I've kept the mowed trail up, kept it mowed just because of um, it had been done for years. And I noticed the deer, 
They'll walk the trail, but the bucks normally stay inside it. Does and fawns seem like they'll walk the they'll walk that trail, but bucks seem to want to stay on the inside of it. They don't want to see all the younger ones. You know, they'll get to it, but walk it. But for the most part, the mature bucks want to stay on the inside of that trail. And it's kind of something I'd noticed um, years ago. And it's just, it's the only farm I've got that's got that mode trail on it. It's not something I typically do, but it was just there. And I noticed that they like to, mature bucks like to stay inside. So it, it does kind of shorten the woods down for me as far as hunting. But um, yeah. no, I, this buck's just going to, I'm going to have to wait till the corn's out to where I can access it good. And he's, uh, he's got a couple other bucks staying with him. You know, they'll, they'll come in there and bed right next to him. And I, it's kind of odd that I say next to him, 10, 15 yards, but they're staying right in the same spot. If it weren't for the standing corn, would you have tried to get in there after him earlier in the season? Or would you wait till not, that late October time period either way? Yeah, I'm probably waiting till late October regardless. I've tipped, well, I, of the, all the bucks I've killed, I've killed two, uh, three. I've killed three in October out of that whole group. So that tells you, <laughs> I don't live close to where I hunt. I'm an hour away, so I don't get that access. I don't get the, the evenings to run out, check out the bean fields, you know, an hour or so at night. I don't have that availability to me that, you know, guys that live close to where they hunt, it's, it is handy. It's a lot handier, but I'm 50, 50 to 50 minutes to an hour from where I hunt. So I have to, I have to spend some time on the road. So I don't get that. The early season thing for me is it's a, it's really rolling the dice. I mean, I, I think you can run some deer out. You can run some deer off your property because I, it's hard to beat a deer back to his bed this time of year. I mean, it's, you got to be in there way early if you think you're going to beat him to his bed. Mm-hmm. And in this heat, I'm just, I guess I'm, I've got the time off in November. I've always taken my time off in November. So obviously that's, that's part of it too. You can only hunt when you can hunt, but um, I don't, I don't typically have a buck. This one this year is kind of a fluke for me because I don't typically have a buck. I can tell you right where he's bedding. I can tell you a vicinity or I can tell you where he's coming and going from. But I'm not, um, I'm not close enough there to actually stay on top of what these deer are always, where they're staying all the time. But, and it changes, you know, you get a buck that you're chasing, he gets killed, well, you, then you're starting over square one, so. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more 
at heartandsoil.co. And make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild, but searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day into today because trust me there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth i heard your buddy andre once tell me that he hates the rut because it's so hard to get after a specific buck because they start doing crazy things um have you had that same frustration even though that's your main time to hunt or have you found that you're able to still get after a specific deer that time Andre and I, um, we've talked about this a lot. I've been friends with Andre since, I don't even know, early 90s. And we talked yesterday. We talk a lot. I mean, I, I talk with him all the time. But his his method of hunting, his style is not is not my style. It just never has been. And that's why I said there's, there's a lot of ways to skin a cat. But um, I'm pretty much a terrain hunter. I mean, I so the rut. Is a, I mean, that's what I can't wait for when these bucks get to moving and, and I'm hunting terrain. I, I'll be the first to admit I'm, I don't hunt trails. I don't hunt sign. Now, will there be a lot of times I'll hang a stand and terrain won't go back to it for two or three weeks. You go back and there's rubs and there's all kinds of sign around you, but I'm pretty well, a a travel corridor type hunter. I mean, that's just basically the whole way, a whole way I hunt. Um, it's all based on how the ground lays and pinch points, fingers, draws. I just, that's how I hunt. And I know it's not the same for everybody, obviously, but the, you know, Andre's gotten, he's gotten that perfected on that bump and dump stuff. He's got that perfected now. He, he, well, Cody does it too. Those guys can bump stuff, get in, hang stuff and get right back on them and kill them. And first of all, I'm not that aggressive. That's why I mentioned early on, I'm not an aggressive hunter and you got to have 
some aggression to do that, that style of hunting. You just got to, and, but I also had a guy tell me one time, what would it take to run yeah. you out of your bedroom? And when you think of it from my perspective, how many times would you have to have somebody run you out of your bedroom before you'd actually leave? Yeah. And, you know, when you think of it from that perspective, I'm not sure you can run a mature buck out of his bed. <laughs> but um, I just, that's not the way I've, not my style of hunting. I just never have been that way. I, I'm, I'm really a lot more cautious hunter conservative i should say maybe not cautious but i'm a lot more conservative i just i just kind of let things play out and i always figure that in the end um if i know where that buck's home core area is i'll get him killed during the rut so in that so kind of situation I'm where not, you're after one deer and you're hunting mostly terrain and travel corridors you know a lot of guys when they're after one specific deer they're going to be analyzing camera photos and sign and all that kind of stuff. But in your case where it sounds like it's more, you know, travel and terrain specific, is it mostly just identifying, okay, well, here's the two pinch points coming in and out of his main core area. And I'm just going to volume hunt those based on wind until he eventually does come through. Or how do you do that when you're after a deer? It's not just like you're going to shoot 10 different bucks. You're after like one buck in the rut. Right. And I hang way more stands in a year than most people could imagine. That's one thing. I, I don't hunt a stand. I don't go to a stand over and over and over. I mean, I'll hunt a stand three, four, five times in a season, and that'll be it. I do a lot of all-day sits, a lot of all-day sits, especially during the rut. And for me, I probably put in a lot more work or time in a tree to get a deer killed and what some guys do because of what they're, they're more aggressive. And I have to play, I just, I'm playing the game of sit back and wait, you know. Um, part of that's because I like being out there. Part of it, in this part of Illinois, you never know what the neighbor's going to, a deer you don't even know is around may show up. Um, so, yes, I'm after, I know, like I said, this year, two deer, then I'm two bucks, and I know I'm after. Uh, does that mean I may not shoot something I've never seen before? I've done it several times, several times. Buck shows up with a doe during the rut. You think, where did he come from? And you can get him killed. But part of that, too, is the fact that these deer that move, you know, they come from a mile away, two miles away. They aren't familiar with the dangers in that specific timber. You know, they're, they're coming in there and they're following the doe. And what she does is what they do. So when you're in a travel corridor, you can get them killed that way. And I've killed a lot of them. I mean, a lot. There's not many deer I've killed that I don't have any pictures or have never seen before. But I've got a handful that you look up, here they come, you think, where'd that deer come from? But typically, I know what I'm after. And typically, it's a waiting game. And you're just playing cat and mouse. I'm not bumping them. I'm not hanging sets on top of their beds. But I typically try to find, okay, I know this buck's going in this vicinity of this woods or this, this, this draw. How's he getting there with certain winds? And why is he traveling it the way he does with certain winds? And then I try to set up accordingly. And it's, I don't know, it's paid off for me through the years. Um, 
And there's, like I said, there's just, there's several different ways to kill big deer. I mean, I, guys that think it's got to be done a certain way, I, I just kind of chuckle at because my, my style of hunting is no ways near what, you know, Andre's is and, and Justin, those, you know, Justin and Heath, Heath Cisco, those guys, they do a lot of hang and hunt sets, bumping deer. Um, I can tell you probably, I can count on one hand the number of bucks I've set up on their beds and killed them. Mm-hmm. Most of mine have all been travel corridors, hunting terrain. Could, could you break down an example of one of these terrain features that would be a dynamite set during the rut or, or, a, or tra- maybe one of each, like a, a real terrain topographic feature you would love to sit and then more of like a cover-related travel corridor kind of set? What might an example of those two look like? Okay. I, I personally, of course, there again, it's a lot of it's got to do with where I'm hunting, you know, this, the Midwest. I love draws. Um, long draws out into ag fields, something that you can access. First of all, I typically never walk far into the woods. Most all of my set stuff is, and I won't say along the edge, but I'm going to say I've, I've got creek access or I've got some way to access to my stand that is not through the woods. Minimally ev- invasion, you know, to, to what, so I don't like, I don't like tipping deer off that I'm there, you know, so I try to figure out how can I get here and draws, you know, you, if you can get in the bottom of them or if you can come in from the sides, the ag fields, that's typically how I approach all of the, of those type of situations. But, um, there again, I'm hunting, uh, terrain and features in a draw. You normally got low ground. I don't like low ground. Typically never hunt low ground myself. Thermals, killers, as far as especially evenings. Um, but, you know, the thermals of a morning, you can get by with some low ground stuff. But I just, I don't hunt it. I mean, I'll be the first to tell you. I'm, I might hunt one, one piece of low ground in five years. I just don't ever. I've had such bad luck with thermals and, and the way bucks. Bucks know. They know how the thermals operate. They know how to get in and out of places, and that's the reason a lot of low ground stuff is to me is unhuntable. But um, when I'm what I'm looking for in a draw is an area that say is is kind of a like a flat or a flatter part that pinches down. And normally it's because of the creek or the way the draw lays where it pinches down and deer have to make a decision. Do I go to the bottom? Do I stay on top? And those are the spots I love. I love hunting draws where there's a pinch point because they typically, you know, a deer is going to draw or going to travel a draw. Basically the way the draw runs, they've got to travel it east, west, north, south, however the draw runs, they're going to travel it lengthwise. So I'm looking for a pinch point. And I love a flat, a flat area that butts up to a pinch point. And it kind of, the, the flat areas kind of give them a place to, uh, to stage, hang out. And then as soon as a buck shows up, especially during the rut, well, they got it. They're going, these deer are going to go down the draw. And normally they'll, you know, you let all the does go by or the smaller bucks. And next thing you know, well, here comes a, you know, 
a decent buck. But uh, ends of draws, points on draws. If you get a draw that goes out and forks, you know, you'll have like a two small, one big draw forks into two smaller draws. Yeah. Those areas. Um, I like to hunt those points and I like to be on the very tips of them, the very ends of them. And it's, it's a tough one as far as wind because wind can swirl around those points and it'll suck it back into the draw. So you've got to be careful on those points. You got to pay. And a lot of times I'll be able to hunt a point and it's got to be a, a Northwest wind. It can't be North, can't be West. It's got to be Northwest. And something I would, something I would really advise people to do, guys get up in their stands and they hang a set. Take your phone in, in with you. Make sure your phone's with you. Sit in that tree and get a good compass app. Look at the compass app and know exactly what direction you're facing. I don't know how many times, and I've got ground I've hunted. This one farm I've hunted for over 40 years. And you can sit in that tree and you know which way is north, south, east. You just know which way it is. You push your compass up and you think, man, that's a quarter turn off or or a little less, you know, and so then you think, okay, well, I can't use straight north. I've got to have northeast or northwest or whatever, but take a compass to your tree. And I've talked with um, some guys that are, I mean, some through the years with guys that killed big deer and everybody's pretty well, everybody's been in agreement, you know. I don't know if you know Jim Ward. Jim does a ton of deer management for buck beds and killing big deer. Yeah. Um, and Jim and I had this conversation years ago and he's the same way. He's like, yeah, you go to a tree and you think, I know that's North. And you know what? You might be a, a little bit off and you can't hunt a North wind. You got to have a little West or a little East. Take your compass with you in your phone. So you know what direction, what winds you need. Cause it's too late when you get there the first hunt and you're getting busted left and right. It's too late. Yeah. So now you've already boogered up a, a set that you had high hopes on. So, but I love hunting points draws, um, saddles, ridges, halfway down the ridge. It's seldom in this area do I see bucks run the top of a ridge. They're, they're a third or halfway down the ridge. They just travel the backside of it, according to the wind, of course. You know, you've got, if you've got a north wind, they're probably going to be on the south side of the ridge. And um, I've just, I've also got a kind of a, an odd thing, I'll tell you, that through the years I've noticed, if you pick out the biggest tree in the woods, if you're in a woods, you're looking around, you see one of those giant white oaks or a giant, giant tree of some sort. It seems like, and this is strange, people call me crazy, but I swear those huge trees attract the mature bucks. I don't know what it is, but it <laughs> looks like year after year, if I've got a big tree in the woods, mature buck will go by it every time. And I don't know what it is. You can't hunt the tree, obviously. They're too big to even put a stand in, but. Right. I'm, I'm strictly, I'd say 99% of the time I'm hunting terrain, terrain, pinch points. And I, I got a buddy I've hunted with for years and he always asked me, so why do you want to be right here? I mean, he's asked me for years and I get a feel, you know, there, it's, it's kind of hard to explain sometimes, but you get a feel for where you're at and what you think a big deer is going to do. And with a certain wind, what's he going to do now? You'll get you're going to get fooled. You're going to, you're going to get in there and think you know what you're talking, you're doing and what you're talking about. You're going to get fooled. A deer's going to do just the opposite. Wind's going to be at his back. He's going to be hunt, traveling the thing 
you, you can't you shake your head and think, well, how do you kill that deer? The wind, he's not doing anything close to what you think he should have done. But for the most part, mature bucks are going to travel either with a crosswind or the wind in their nose. They just do. And when you get in a draw, you know, these big timbers, these big woods, they're hard to shut, they're hard to shut a deer down. I mean, they yeah. can go anywhere. And part of the reason I don't like to hunt big woods is because of that. I'll, I'll go find something that's smaller, something that leads up to it, a fence row. Um, but I, I don't, uh, I just don't like the, the bigger timber. I like the smaller stuff. I love hunting five, 10 acre patches, but you got details. That's a big thing on these, especially on smaller timbers. You gotta, you gotta pay attention to details and you can't just go stomping in with any wind. You know, you, you just ruin the set one or two hunts, you're done, you know, but boy, if you pay attention to the details and you can get into these small areas, small wood lots, uh, Fence rows out in the middle of nowhere, if you can get into them, right wind, right conditions, they can be dynamite for killing mature bucks. Yes, yeah, so but, during uh, the yeah, rut. The pump and dump thing, I actually, I actually wish I was good or knew more about, and I don't say no more about, but I just I wish I was better at what those guys do uh, as far as bumping big deer, setting up on them, because I'm, that's just not my game, never has been. Yeah. So, so with your style of hunting, I'm, I'm during the rut, I'll jump, I'll jump on and never see him again. Yeah. The, uh, the style of hunting that you do then, which is this terrain focus in the rut, um, poses a couple interesting questions. If, if so much of your hunting is dependent on, you know, being on those travel corridors, there's this dilemma that I face a lot when I'm trying to figure out the right spot to sit in a good looking travel corridor. Cause you, there'll be the pinch point or there, there'll be the saddle. There'll be that head of a draw where they're all coming around the ditch, whatever it is. And let's say that looks great and it's obvious. So that's the spot. But what happens when you don't have that perfect tree that's perfectly in range of that spot, right? I, I often will sit there and I'll be sitting there trying to pick the tree and I'll think, well, this is the tree that gives me the best shot at the, you know, 20 yards or whatever to that little crossing or whatever it is that I'm hunting. So do you pick the tree that's in the perfect location, but let's say that tree has no good cover and maybe there's also like a secondary trail downwind of it too. So you're risking maybe getting winded a little bit more and you're not going to have much cover. Do you take that one still though, because it gives you the easiest shot right to the spot or do you take the tree that's farther away but it has great cover and there's no way you're going to get winded. But now you're talking, ah, you know, he might be in range. He might not be in range in that one. What would you err towards in that kind of situation? Well, I'm a, you probably think this is too easy, but what I would do in that situation is like I talked earlier, that deer's going by a thousand trees when he walks at or a hundred trees, whatever it is in that draw, go figure out, Where's a better location to cut him off? Hmm. And that's typically, I mean, I can spend, and I don't mean this, I mean hours I can spend on one setup trying to figure out, okay. And I always tell everybody, pay attention to how you walk personally. When you're walking a draw or you're walking ground, pay attention to how you walk it. Humans are lazy. Mature bucks are dang sure lazy. You're going to probably walk that similar 
to how a mature buck walks that because they don't want to go up and down the hill five times if they don't have to. They don't want to cross a fence. They don't want to, you know, these features in this ground, they want to walk the easiest way they can, but they want to walk it for darn sure with the wind in their favor if they can. So um, I would, on what you did, the scenario you just said, I would probably say, okay, can't hunt there. But let's go down the, let's go, where'd this buck come from? Where's he coming from? Let's go figure out another place that you can, you can shut him down. And I, like I said, I, I've spent hours and I've, I've got, I told you, I got this one farm I've hunted 40 years. And two years ago, this draw that I've hunted, I've killed probably a handful of 150 plus bucks in this one draw. Thought that the the east end of this draw, I thought there's no way to get to it, no way to hunt it. Just thought there, I mean, I I just never even really tried because I just thought it was unhuntable. I thought I'm just going to be blowing everything out of here. There's no way to get to it. So three or four years ago, I'm standing in there in February or March, and I'm looking at all these rubs in this little flat, and I'm thinking to myself, how can I get in here? I thought, okay, there's an old logging road that's been in there for, I don't know, probably been there 30 years now, on the other side of the draw. So now I've made up my mind, I'm going to walk across this draw to get up to this flat. I'm going to come up this, it's, it's not really a bluff, but it's a real high, real high hill. I'm going to go straight up this hill and into my tree. I'm five steps off the edge of this, this flat. It's been a dynamite tree. It's just, and in all those years, I thought there's no way to hunt it. Well, there's, there's ways to hunt things. You've got to, you know, and I think the longer you hunt a woods, the worse hunter you become because you've had success in here, here, and here, and you keep going back to that here, here, and here. Well, deer change. Of course, they get you patterned as well. So um, I I moved a stand, put a hung stand in there, and the first time I went in there, had three different bucks over 140 come by me. I thought, you got to be kidding. I've never hunted this all these years because I thought it was unhuntable. And here we are in a rut, and they're just they're just piling through here. And last year was the second year I hunted it. Saying I've not killed a buck out of it, but I will kill a I'll kill a good one on this on this spot. And I had probably I don't know I had one day I had eight different bucks by me, Pope and Young. None of them, none of them probably were 140, but uh, eventually it'll pay off. But yeah, I just so- I I look at an area, and if I think, man, I can't I can't hunt here. Back up, walk down the draw, go, go. you know, it's the same deal. That deer is going to get from point A to point B somehow. And if you think, well, this is where I want to be, you may be making a mistake. Don't be where you want to be. Be where you have to be. I mean, that's that's pretty well the way I approach it. I, it's like, man, I'd love to be here. And you look around, no tree to hunt. I think, man, I'd love to be here. But you just walk away. Head down the draw one way or the other, or find it, you know, find another spot. Yeah. I know it sounds, so I know that sounds the, almost too simple, but it's, that's just the way I approach it as far as. No, it's a great point. The other part of that equation, though, is the wind, right? Um, and you mentioned a little bit ago yes. how, you know, that there's certain things that we think a buck's going to do with the wind, and then sometimes they surprise us. Um, but usually, the buck's going to be trying to use that wind to his advantage when he's traveling, maybe with it in his face or crosswind or something like that. So with that being said, a lot of folks I know and myself included will try to find ways to set up, you know, where you can hunt, where the buck thinks he's using the wind 
in a favorable way for himself, but also you can get away with it, right? Cutting the edge or cutting the corner in some kind of way. Um, can can you talk about how you do that in these kinds of setups, in these kinds of like draws that you're hunting? How do you typically like to hunt that? Is it with the wind going perpendicular across the draw or do you have it almost parallel, but just off parallel? So it's blowing either down into the valley or out into the field? How do you typically try to set up and use wind in this kind of draw scenario where we've got a narrow finger going out into a field or something and and you're hunting in there? Here in in central Illinois, we've got, you got about everywhere you hunt, you've got ag fields. So I'm typically letting my scent blow to the ag fields of a morning. And if I've got a situation where I think a deer's traveling maybe the edge of a morning, I'll try to set up to where the wind's over the top of him. Typically in a morning setups, the, the bucks will walk the edges. You know, they won't walk out on the out in the middle of the field, you know, where they're going to wind you. But if you can get the wind over the top of them, um, it's a big, it's, that's, that's one thing I try to do. If I think, okay, this buck may come along this edge, I'll try to get high enough that the wind's over the top of him. Blowing out over top of him, but but blowing out towards the field. So you're into the timber a little ways, and it's blowing yes. above him out. Okay. Yes, into the ag fields. Yes. Okay. Yep, I'm blowing my scent into the ag field, you know, 50, 75 yards off the edge. Try to get over the top of something. Typically in a draw, when you've got crosswinds, which is what you totally have to hunt, you, it's hard to hunt a, a draw with the wind going up and down it, obviously. Yeah. Uh, but typically you're dealing with... You're dealing with a crosswind in a draw. You've got to hunt it with a north, south, east, west, depending on which way the draw is running. And um, I'll try to set up to where the wind and and it's another it's another good scenario is when you've got this crosswind and you've got this this creek or draw that's running east west and you're going to hunt it on the say the north side of the draw. So you're going to want a south wind, and as that south wind comes across. That low ground, a lot of times, the wind will, will pick up. It'll lift. It's the thermals. It'll lift of a morning. So it, it actually helps you as well get the, get the scent a little higher over the top of stuff. But I'll typically look for this spot that has um, a, piece of the, a piece of the draw that jets out into a field. Just And I don't, it doesn't have to be five yards. You know, just along the edge. Something that jets out. And set up on that, set up to where you're not really in the main travel area of that draw. Just get get away from. And and I'm and the I know I'm when I you get into some of these situations, you think, well, yeah, they're that's one a needle in a haystack. Well, it may be. Uh, you may you may walk a whole draw and think, well, there's nothing here that interests me. Uh, does that mean you can't kill a buck in it? No. It just means it's not an ideal situation or an ideal setup. But Back to your point on the on the the wind. A uh, fellow told me one time years ago, the perfect wind is one that's almost right for the deer and almost wrong for you. And when you think about yeah. that, you think, and that's that is so true. It's almost you know you're just you're constantly playing that wind game and you're constantly cutting, you know, situations that are. It's always a close call. I mean, it just is. But. Uh, I square square timber, I'll tell guys this. Square timber. I I like to be 50, 75 yards off of a corner. If you got a square corner, 
get 50 to 75 yards off of the corner and hunt it with a wind that don't, I don't like a quartering wind when I'm hunting a square woods on a corner because what'll typically happen is the wind will come, a, come through and it'll, it'll, on that corner, that wind will suck right back into that corner every time. Hmm. If you've got like a, say you're on a north end of a woods, 50, 75 yards from the east side, and you think, okay, I need to have south wind here, but I could probably get by with, say, a southwest. Well, that's, that, that west will be enough for that wind to come out to the corner, and it'll suck it right back in that corner. I don't know how many times I've seen that happen. And after you, after you do it two or three times and you get winded, you think, well, this doesn't work. Typically, I tell guys, you know, on a square woods, and not every, not every woods lays directly east or west, north and south, but I, I want a direct straight wind in my face when I'm hunting a square woods because it will suck it back in the corners. Interesting. Um, I mean, there's a lot... There's a lot of experience that goes into wind and thermals when you're hunting. You just, it's, I can, you know, you say this like you've, you've got this figured out, but I can tell you many times that, you, that I've gotten busted, you know, thinking you had it figured out and mm-hmm. that didn't work. Well, guess what? <laughs> Start over and learn, just learn from it. You got to, it's a, a lot of experience goes into killing mature bucks as far as, you know, you learn from your bad experiences more than you do the good ones. If this works, perfect. Let's figure out why it works. Yeah. I was just going to ask, is there anything you've found that has provided you a safety net for when the wind goes wrong? Do you, do you have any scent control program to try to help you out in that kind of position? Do you have any cover scent, any, anything that's helped you out, or is it a hundred percent just got to make the wind work? You know, I'm, I don't know, maybe I'm too hard headed on this, but I've got friends that use ozonics. I've got friends that use that, whatever the charcoal clothing and, and every one of them will tell you, yeah, I got busted. I've got a, I, two guys I know that use two ozonics in their tree. Yeah, like deer got out there in the, you know, in the field in the evening and there's a bunch of does out there feeding and here comes the, you know, here comes a buck they want to shoot. Well, they all the field scattered and something picked them off. I'm thinking, I don't think there's any shortcuts. I don't think you're beating a deer's nose. I don't care what you do or what you try. People say, well, he was directly downwind of me. He may have been directly downwind, but that's not where your scent was going. Your scent was going somewhere else, either from the thermals, from you know, swirling winds from the, from the terrain, something changed the way you think your, your scent was going. Something was changing it before it got there. A deer doesn't just stand there with your scent blowing right to him. I mean, it's just not going to happen. So guys say, well, they were directly downwind. They didn't smell me. Well, they may have been what you think is directly downwind, but that's not, that's not where your scent was actually going. Cause I don't think there's anything you can do to beat a deer's nose. I just don't, I don't think you can do it. I mean, if a dog can smell stuff the way that, you know, you've seen all these studies, these dogs pick up stuff that's buried, they pick up all this scent. And a deer's nose, what, a thousand times better than a human's or something. And so I don't think you can beat it. I I just think you're going to have trial and error. Certain places you think you can hunt, it works. And certain places you think you can hunt, it's not going to work. But, 
it's experience is huge in the in the woods on that thermals and and wind. You mentioned trying to sometimes blow your wind over top of them. Um, to do that, are you trying to get to a certain height in the tree usually to to be able to get away with that? Sometimes, if so, what's that height you like to try to get up at? I have hunted and. I've hunted from six feet off the ground to, to 25, 27 feet. I seldom get over 20 to 22 feet normally is, and I'm talking actual measured feet. Guys say they hunt 30 feet and I look at the tree and I'm like, yeah, you're about 20 feet, you know, but mm-hmm. actual measured 20 to 22 feet is, is plenty high enough if you're on the edge of a field to get the scent over the top of them. Okay. Um, I shot a buck last year. The buck I killed last year sent right over the top of him. He walked the edge. And sent was over top of him, but it, it was a spot that I've hunted for years. I knew I'm pretty well knew that, you know, I, I'd get by with it. But uh, twenty feet, you know, twenty feet's pretty high. Yeah, can you can you break down that location you killed that buck at last year? Um, so it sounds like you were in the edge of some kind of field. But why was that buck there? How did you set up on that, and, and why did he come through the way you thought he would? This and this is another case of I when I told you earlier, this buck, no, I have no past knowledge of this deer. I didn't even know he existed. It's a small wood lot. It might be 15 acres total. And it's a square, it is a square corner where I'm hunting. And I'm about, I'm gonna say on this, I'm probably 75 yards south of the north corner on the east side of the woods. And these bucks, of course, I've hunted it for years. I've hunted it since I was in high school. So I've, I've kind of got the, you know, you got a pretty good knowledge of the woods. But these bucks like to take this, cor- they like to make a loop in this corner. They don't go clear into the corner. They want to make a loop. They don't square it off. They'll round off corners. Yeah. So as they round off these corners, you know, that's the reason I say don't get on, don't stay on the corners. You got to get off 75 yards off of the corner because a buck won't go to the corner and turn left and right and make square corners. They round off corners. And he was in there by himself. I don't know. It was 10, 10, 15 in the morning. I look up and here he comes walking, making his loop through the woods. And it's during the rut. It's the 16th, 17th of November. And he's out cruising. You know, he's lost, he's turned his last doe loose and he's out looking for another doe. And um, he rounds the corner and comes walking right to me. I mean, he's, oh, you can see in the video of it. You, he he gets within, I must say, 20 yards of me, facing me, coming right, I mean, he's coming right at me. And I'm, it's, it's not a very good situation. And he cuts where a doe would walk through that morning. He cuts a track. He turns broadside. I can't even shoot him. Same thing, walks, and he goes to the outside of the woods. And as soon as he goes to the outside, he turns and walks right down the outside edge. But, um, there's not if you if if I took you in that woods and you saw the sign in that woods where I'm sitting is a you would never you would never sit there. But experience, you know, knowing the woods tells you know, you you can learn a lot if you just pay attention and, and carry it over year to year. How did a buck how I saw a mature buck in here, whatever he was, how did he walk the woods? How did he cover it? What was the wind? And keep just keep the mem- keep that memory bank and just keep keep remembering that stuff that hey, this is how he traveled this woods. Does it, does it make sense? It may not make sense to you. You may think, well, that's crazy. 
guess what? The next year you set up in there where you could have killed that first buck. Here comes the next one the next year, and he's doing to do the same thing. And you think, why is he yeah. doing this, or why do they do this? But um, I've been pretty um, pretty successful being a conservative hunter. So that's, you know, guys do what works for them. Yeah. And I've just been successful being conservative and laying back and letting things play out more so than being aggressive. So there is times I kill deer that I don't know anything about, but for the most part. With that approach does or do trail cameras factor in at all for you? I mean, it seems like you're, when you're depending on these terrain features, it's not like you're chasing a deer all over the place. You're just waiting for that deer to come through the pipe, right? Do you, do you lean much on cameras or, or not so much? Yeah, I do. I use the camera strictly for inventory. Okay. You know, once you, and I got a bunch of cell cameras and I've run probably too many of them. And it's a lot of us, so I don't have to go check them. So there's no intrusion, you know, you just hang a camera and you don't go back until the batteries are dead. But yeah. Um, and part of it's because I'm an hour away from where I hunt, but I use a lot of my camera stuff is strictly for inventory. Is there a buck on this farm that I even want to chase? Some years there's not. And don't waste your time. Now, do cameras tell the whole story? No, not at all. Not at all. I mean, I had I had two cell cameras in this woods I'm telling you about. This buck had never been on them. Um, so no, deer can get, mature bucks especially can get by cell cameras or any camera and you never even, they walk 10 yards behind the tree or whatever, you don't even know they're around. But um, community scrapes, especially Long edges, I love those for, for cell cameras. It just gives you an inventory of what's there. And then I make my decisions on how am I going to hunt this piece. If I know there's a kill or a, a buck I want to kill, then um, I just, you know, part of it, and I, and I know the guy's going to say, well, you know what, I don't have unlimited acreage to just to hunt every year. And I get that. Um, I'm fortunate I've got half a dozen different farms that I hunt, so I can bounce around. Uh, if you don't have anything to kill, go to a different farm, you know, find, hunt, hunt where you've got something you want to shoot. And there again, that sounds simple and easy, but don't waste your time somewhere that there's not something you want to shoot. But yes, I use cell cameras. I use, I use a lot of them and, and I, I just use it for inventory, you know, to, to, to so I, just so I know what farm I, to avoid or what farm I want to hunt. Yeah. So if you get uh, a picture of the buck you're after or one of the bucks you're after, you know, showing up day yesterday, let's say, will you ever chase that picture? Will you ever say, all right, well, he was in that funnel yesterday. I should go spend some time there. Or are you too late at that point? And it doesn't really matter. Well, see, that's the problem with the way I hunt. Uh, that is one drawback is typically I'm hunting the rut. So just because you saw him there yesterday at 10 o'clock in the morning, no. Will I go set up there the next day at 10 o'clock in the morning to try to kill that specific? Now, number one, if the wind's right, I might go in there the next day. But typically, you're you're chasing your tail at that point. And that's the reason Andre doesn't, you know, these guys are trying to kill a specific buck on their bed. That's the reason they don't like it. It's because there's no consistency to what that buck's doing. And yeah. But that's what I'm banking on is the, the inconsistent movement 
of mature mature deer, I'm banking on, you know, that buck's going to come through this certain corridor that I'm hunting or the setup that I'm hunting. I'm banking on if I'm there for two days, I'm banking on he's coming through there at some point. And those, if I sit all day for two days during the rut, he's coming through unless he's, you know, unless he's pinned down with another doe or something. But I'm banking on if he's moving, he's coming through here. It doesn't always it doesn't always pan out, but you're only looking for, you know, in a year's time, you're only looking for two times you got to be in the right spot. Yeah. And things have got to go right, of course. You know, you still have to make the shot. But for the most part, I'm banking on that deer's coming through here. When he's out cruising, he's coming through here at some point. You know, in a couple of days, I'll get him killed. But it doesn't always work. But neither does, neither does setting up on beds. Yeah. Is that usually what you do when it comes to assuming the wind works? When you're hunting these right. terrain features where you are depending on, you know, he's going to come through eventually, do you usually try to do two days at a time to give that window of opportunity or three days at a time? Is, is there a typical number of or number of hours or days where you will sit a great location like that, assuming the wind's right? Assuming the wind's right, you don't get, you know, if the wind doesn't change for a day or two, which sometimes that's the way it is around here. We might get four or five days in a row with the same wind, but. I don't typically hunt more than two days in one spot, but my first day, normally if I go to a spot, they'll tell me a lot of whether I'm coming back the next day or not. Um, if I go to a spot like that, and let's say I go there and I sit all day and I don't see hardly anything, and I know, I know during the rut, it's a dynamite spot. I've been there before. I've seen them come through here. You know, it's I'm going back the next day because I know the odds are in my favor. It's going to pay off at some point. And if you don't see anything one day, you can about bet the deer just weren't on that part of the farm. Uh, you the next day they'll you'll probably you'll probably have a better day. But uh, I don't I don't like to hunt a spot more than two days in a row. I'm normally bouncing bouncing around. Okay. And I normally have I'll have normally 25 sets hanging. Uh, by the time the rut gets here, I'll have 25 stands out, 22, 23, 25, somewhere in that range most every year. And and then if, you know, you get something where you, you're chasing a buck that you don't have any sets that you think you can kill him, it's hang and hunt, climb and stand or hang and hunt. You know, I don't, I don't mind doing it if I'm after a certain buck in a certain area and I think I can't get him killed out of one of my presets, but um, I... I, I do typically hunt preset stands. So so back to kind of that decision of which of those places to hunt. You know, I, I know we've talked about like there'll be a buck you're after. You kind of figure out where his core is. So let's say like this buck that you know about this year, he, he, he's in this spot by that fence. I imagine then there might be a number of different terrain features or travel corridors that maybe extend out from there. So I don't know. I obviously don't know the specifics, but let's just say there's like, two draws and then there's like two other travel corridors so maybe we'll say there's like four different places where maybe his movement might pinch down eventually at some point where you could catch him and you're thinking on any you know it's the night before the hunt or the morning of the hunt and you're making the decision of okay where should i hunt today is it solely based on what's the wind and then a hunch based on history or are you ever doing any other level of scouting or anything else is going to help you choose where you're going to hunt on that given day. Maybe the better way to phrase this is just 
what are the what are the variables going through your head when you're trying to pick okay which of these corridors which of these features do i hunt tomorrow morning well i'm able to bounce around like i said i got enough stands hung normally that i can bounce around and it's you're right it's my my decision is going to be 100% based on the wind i look at the wind projections for the next day on an app on my phone then i start going through my mind okay i've got this this and this stand to hunt with this wind have I been there yet this year? Is there a buck there I want to shoot? And if I've not been there, I'm going. <laughs> I mean, I like to hit. I like to hit every stand at least once, you know, during the rut, and and see what see if I'm right or wrong on my hunch on. And there's some stands I never hunt. I'll hang them. I never hunt them. But uh, yeah, my my decision making is 100% based on wind, where I'm going to go the next day. And not very often do I get up of a morning and change my plan from the night before. Now, if the wind's changed and not quite what it was supposed to be or something like that, uh, I might I might change. But not very often. If I make a decision, I'm going to go here, there, whatever. And there's times I'll, I'll think, dang, I haven't hunted that stand. I forgot. I, that's not perfect for this wind. I might go to it. But normally, I make a game plan the night before, and that's where I'm going. Uh, and it's it's all based on wind. Have I been there? You know, is there is there a reason to go? That's your first thing. If there's no reason to go there, don't go. But uh, I do I do most all my hunting based on wind. Uh, what stands I'm going to be in is going to be based on what the wind's going to be. Do you usually stick in these spots? I know you say you do all day sits a lot. Um, but are are those all day sits in the exact same location through the entire day, or do you ever switch midday or in the afternoon to a different evening focus spot? Um, can these work the entire day? There are some locations that that I hunt that are terrible morning or afternoon. You know, you think, okay, well, this is a great spot in the morning. It's terrible in the evening. It could be because you can't get out of there. You know, it could be a location that the now the deer are going to be in the field. They're all going to wind you once they get out there. And I do move some. Uh, but typically, if I'm hunting pinch points, I'm you know, you've got bedding areas on some part of either one end or the other of what you're hunting. You've got reason for bucks to be either coming by, going to bedding areas, or coming out of bedding areas in the evening. Uh, so I've got I've got several places that I can hunt. An entire day and never move and it's all uh, because of where bedding areas are and how they're coming either they're going to them in the morning or they're coming out of them in the evening so you're able to catch them either direction but there are some places you can't you can't sit there in the evening and because you know if it's wind blowing out in the ag field and that's where they're going out to feed you know all you're doing is educating deer in the evening then i then i'll move midday i'll get out of there but i'll tell you something else that's kind of strange for me personally is all the bucks I've killed, um, I would say, and I'm not being, uh, I'm telling you the truth here. I'm not, this isn't, I've killed probably five or less in the evenings. Hmm. So that's got, it's got to do with the way I'm hunting. And I, to, for me to put, put a finger on why, I can't tell you that because I've thought about it. I've talked about it with, and I got guys that, despise hunting mornings and I would give up three evenings to hunt one morning. Yeah. But it's just, it's got to do with my style of hunting, obviously, because I'm killing most of them, all my deer in the mornings. 
Now I've killed some midday. I've killed some 10 o'clock in the morning, but I, the biggest buck ever killed was in the evening. <laughs> so it's not that I haven't killed good ones in the evening, but I, I think I could probably count on one hand out of all the deer I've killed that have been killed in the evening. Almost everything's mornings. So that's, that's got to do with my style, obviously. Yeah. So this style, as I'm like hearing you and as we've talked, I feel like I'm starting to get a more well-rounded picture of, of your approach. You're, you're very rut-ish focused. You're very focused on catching these bucks once they get to traveling as they're cruising their territory and they're checking does and they're you know, getting after it in late October all the way through November. And so to do that, you're in these pinch points or in these terrain features where deer movement gets concentrated using the wind the right kind of way. I'm, I'm starting to get a good picture here, but I'm curious if you were a professor, you were teaching a class on this and you were standing up in front of your class today, it's the end of class. And you want to make sure that someone who's listened to you today would remember three things, like the three rules of hunting the Brad Davis way. What would those three things be that you'd want folks to walk away with today at the end of your class? Could you, could you think of those three most important takeaways, either when it comes to, you know, choosing the terrain or stand sites or, or any of the things we've talked about or something else entirely? What would those top three things Some, be? One, one thing I've not even touched on that I think is huge that seldom gets talked about. I mean, I could do a whole, I could do an hour talking with people on how to approach your stand, getting in, getting out. Yeah. Nobody hardly talks about it, but I think it's one of the major reasons guys run a set. They either, they're tripping through, you know, there's always, almost always a way that you can get to a stand with minimal disturbance. And that's one reason, not all, the whole thing, but that's one reason I love my electric bike. And I just, I've only been using it. I think this will be my fourth or fifth year using an electric bike. Uh, but I, I always hated walking in because deer, deer know the cadence of a person walking. They know. Yeah. I mean, they can, you can have deer 100 yards from you in the woods take off running. You hear them running in the dry leaves because they know a, a person's coming. They haven't figured out yet. Now, will they? I suppose as more guys use bikes or they get used to it, they may figure out there's danger with a bicycle. But you can drive up to deer 40, 50 yards away on a bicycle because there's no human foot cadence to it that, that they, they know. But getting in and getting out is, I mean, I try to find depressions, creeks, uh, low ground, anything that gets me an advantage. And a lot of times it's extra work. And that's the reason a lot of guys don't do it. A lot of times that you've got to go around the long way, you got to you got to cross something you don't want to cross, whatever. But when I hang a set, I look for the best advantage point for me to get to it with the least disturbance. And we've not even talked about it, but there's there was an old barn that was on one of my farms I used to hunt. I would actually walk through that old barn, and it was falling in, <laughs> but I would walk through it because the the dirt floor in the barn, well, you know what old dirt, pulverized dirt, it was so quiet. You, it was like walking on sand. Yeah. You could walk through it. And I was 10 yards from that corner of that barn. I just pop up in my tree and I made no noise. But um, getting in and getting out, 
is huge to me. I, I just think too many deer figure out, hey, this guy, this he's walking in this direction. I mean, they cut your track. They know there's something up. They track you to your tree. You know, you know, you see deer do stuff when you're in the tree, but when you leave, they're doing the same thing when you leave. They cut your track. They're still tracking it to the tree. They're still smelling your steps or your sticks or whatever. Um, but I just think getting to your tree, wind in your face, uh, and getting there undetected is, is it's just huge, I think. At the least amount of disturbance you have with deer figuring out, hey, somebody's hunting me or somebody's here, I think that's big. Uh, nobody hardly ever, I mean, you can do hours and hours and nobody talks about getting in and out of your your set. How do you get to it? How do you get a, get out of it? How do you get out of it at dark when you know deer out in the field? Is if you got a way to get out of there without running all the deer off? Do you have to wade through them to get out? Um, and if you do, you probably need to figure out a different way to get out or not hunt it in the evenings. Um, yeah. That's one thing that I think guys should really pay attention to. And if it, if you got to walk an extra mile, you'll be glad you did. If you kill a good, you know, if you kill a mature buck and you've had to walk an extra mile at the end of the day, you'll be thrilled. Worth it. Um, and I think, I don't mean this to sound bad, but there's a lot of guys are just lazy. And I don't mean that as in, in general terms, they're lazy. They hunt lazy. They think, man, I can ride my four-wheeler up here. I can, you know, I can drive my truck and park the truck right here, and I won't have to walk as far. It's, you're only cheating yourself. You know, you're, you're the one that's going to be paying the, paying for it because it, it's just going to ruin a set or um, guys say, well, deer don't pay attention to four-wheelers. <laughs> deer don't pay attention to this or that. Yes, they do. Sit in a tree in the dark and watch somebody, you know, the farmer next door take his four-wheeler out to his tree. You got deer blowing, carrying on. He can't hear it. Four-wheelers running. He's driving to his tree stand. Um, yeah. I just think getting in and getting out undetected is, is a big, big thing. Uh, that would be one thing I would tell, especially new hunters, you know, guys that are just getting into it. Um, that's, that's one thing. The other thing I would, I always say is, you know, it's a, it's a long learning curve and I'm not even, I mean, I been doing this for a lot of years, but I still learn stuff every year, wind and thermals. It's just, you know, lay of ground is changes everything when you just think you got something figured out the ground lays a little different than you figure and it does something different in this spot than it did in that spot but the wind is it's huge but if i had to tell some young hunter the best thing to do um like just starting out i would tell them to stay back spend more time watching an area before they just dive into it. Hunt mm -hmm. from a perimeter spot that you're not doing any damage. Hunt two or three evenings from that spot and watch what the deer are doing. How are they traveling that draw? How are they traveling that woods? And where, where are they coming out of the woods? You know, where are they going into it? Pay, just pay attention and then make a move. Uh, it's easier to not mess up a spot, staying back and watching than it is to just dive in. Some guys just want to dive in right off the bat. And, of course, that's never been my approach, but some guys are successful with it. Some guys can, can dive in, and, and, they're, and they've, got it, they've got that part figured out. I never have been able to – that's just not the way I'm 
I kind of approach it. I just I always like to lay back and watch and see what's going to happen and, and then make a move and, and try to set something that, hey, I know I can get there of a morning or I can get there in the evening. I can be there. They don't know I'm there. And that's that's probably the three things that I think guys make mistakes is diving in and not really knowing for sure. They, they're just, it's a crapshoot. Some guys don't have a lot of time to hunt. That's the, you know, um, when you, when you spend six weeks a year can hunt every day, it's a lot different than the guy that's got one week off from his job to hunt. You know, he, he oh, can't yeah. sit back two or three evenings or two or three mornings and see what's going to happen. So, and I understand that part, but guys need to pay attention and remember what they, what they see a deer, a mature buck do, what they see him do, he didn't just do it once. He did it for a reason. And even if you don't see him move through that piece of woods again, the next mature buck's probably going to move through it very similar. They just have a certain way they want to move through a, a block of woods or a piece of timber or draw or whatever. They, there's certain ways they want to move through it with the wind in their, in their favor. And and then, you know, you always have that outlier. Well, I, this guy, this buck was, he came through here with the wind at his back. Yeah, I'm sure he did. He had to get from there to there. And that's the only way he was going to get there that day. Yeah. Uh, but I just, I think uh, the, if you're, you're three things that you're talking about, I think the getting in and getting out with the least disturbance, least amount of scent on the ground, um, pay attention to the wind and pay attention to what deer, and I don't mean deer in general. I mean mature deer. When you see three, four, five-year-old yeah. deer do bucks do something, pay attention to it. They did it. They did it for a reason. And it may not pay off this year, may not pay off next year. But if you've got a piece of ground that you can hunt three years from now, you may kill a buck exactly doing the exact same thing that buck did that you saw, you know, two, three seasons before. Because they go through, they travel, they travel a piece of timber, a piece of ground the same for a reason. So pay attention, you know, just don't, it's not just happenstance that they do it. Yeah. And that's I'm such probably, a good thing uh, to remember. I'm probably not giving you near, I'm probably not giving you near the details stuff you want to hear, but um, that's how I approach that's it. Great. I mean, I'm pretty conservative. I, um, I just, I, and I also think there's a lot of guys overthink stuff, you know, it's, it's not rocket science. There's a lot of trees, like I told you earlier. You just think about how many trees in a day's time a mature buck could be killed out of. I don't care what the wind is. There's still trees every day that you could kill a mature buck out of. You just got to you got to have one around. I mean, that's if you don't have one around, you can't kill him. You can't kill what's not there. Yeah, that's you know it's easy to say, but it's just the truth. And living here in Central Illinois. Typically have them. Yeah. The, you make this great point, though, about how there's so many different trees that they walk by that you could be sitting in. It's it's almost you can get stuck in this analysis paralysis when you do overthink things and you think, oh, gosh, I have to pick the single one tree that it'll work from. And and you make this great point that that's not necessarily the case. You, you do enough of the right things and you put in your time and you're smart about it with the right access, um, you know, it'll it can come together. So uh, that I think almost relieves a certain burden off of you mentally. So you can kind of go into the hunt, maybe a little bit, I don't know if this is the right word, but almost lighter when you're not stressing so much about having to have that one perfect tree, you go in with it a little bit um, 
I don't want to say loose and you don't want to be lackadaisical, but just knowing that, hey, you don't have to have this 2000% the perfect tree because there's all these other options and you can, you can it, it can come together when you do these three, four, five core things right. Um, so that's a great takeaway from this today, Brad. I, uh, I appreciate you sharing this. I know that. One other thing I was going to tell you, you know, a lot of guys, everybody wants to be way back. Everybody wants to go deep. Everybody wants to. Well, guess what? That buck, he may be back a mile off the road, but he's not there all day long, especially during the rut. So why go clear back there if you know he's going to, hey, he's got to come out of this piece of timber on this point, or he's got to come, if he's traveling from A to B, he's coming out of there somewhere. Why go clear in there? Why have to be deep in the woods when you can catch him coming out, or you might catch him coming into the woods? Um, you you. You just cut down your your disturbance of, and basically you're not warning them every time you're there that hey I'm in here you know I I just yeah. I love hunting minimal disturbance. Yep. Yeah, you can never go wrong with that. That's always going to be a, a good rule of thumb. Keep it low impact. Keep them unaware. Hunt with the right wind. Putting the and time in those right key spots. You know, you get guys that think that. You get guys thinking that their way is the only way, and and I'm probably the. I think there's I think there's a million ways to kill a big deer. Um, you just got to have one around, and and you know if I if I'm if I'm hiring somebody if I've got a business and I'm going to hire somebody, and I'm talking to a guy and he hunts, he's a hunter, and he's success a successful trophy hunter, I'm hiring him because I guarantee you he's not willing he's not afraid to work. The guy that kills the biggest deer is paying his dues every year. Every year, he's outworking the guy that wants to kill one but doesn't spend the time doing it. There is no part of no part of what gets done on killing mature bucks that you take shortcuts. Um, the guy that's willing to put in the time every year, year after year, pay attention to details, put in the work. That guy is going to be a heck of an employee too because that's the way he you know he's not afraid of work. Um, so. If you tell me you're a deer hunter, you never kill a big deer, and there's a guy next to you that's applied for a job, and these guys killing them every year, I think this guy he's putting in the work. He knows, he knows I'm not afraid to work, or I know he's not afraid to work. I probably hire him every day because I know how much work it takes to kill mature bucks year after year. It's not easy, even if you've got them around. It's not easy. And there's yeah. guys that think, well, they're behind every tree. No, they're not behind every tree. Yep. But, well, man, you make a great point about uh, about deer hunting success helping with hiring decisions. We might see a whole new trend in folks uh, in the deer hunting world having higher employment well, because of that. <laughs> well, you do you do these podcasts all the time. You know the guys that are successful are not guys that are laying on the couch. They're not guys that oh, yeah. are afraid to go out and do the extra work. You know, they're not the guy that's afraid to hang twenty tree stands to to know that only one of them is going to pay off. And 100%. It, there's a lot of work and dedication that goes into killing mature deer year after year. There just is. Yep. That you might be the only it. thing I mean, just that's gotta... consistent. Yeah. Like the, of, you mentioned, like, yes. there's so many different ways to skin the cat, and there are. But the one thing every good deer hunter has in common, though their styles and their approaches might be different, they all work hard. That's that's the big thing. That, that's every, the through line. Every one of them's putting in their time to do what they do. 
you know, whether it's whatever your approach is, every one of them's putting in the time and the work. You, you just have to, you know, you got guys, well, I'll just throw Andre out for an example. Yeah, he kills big deer every year. But it's not because he doesn't, he doesn't just go out there and say, I'm going to go kill this buck tonight and, and not had put any time in to do it. He's got it figured out too. I mean, he spent the time and he's, he's paid the dues and he knows, obviously you're, the curve probably does flatten with the more experience you have, that curve probably does flatten, but you still don't just kill big deer by, by not putting in the time and doing your leg work and the homework. Yeah. Very true. Well, Brad, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to do this and, and share your perspective. Um, I think you, you've got a style and an approach to this that I think is, is really helpful for a lot of folks to, to think about. Because these days, one thing that is kind of common is this overcomplicating of deer hunting. And, and I think you've got something here that folks could benefit from to kind of simplify it a little bit down to a key, a couple core key things and then just do that well. And that's a smart approach in a lot of cases. So, uh, so thank you for joining us for that. Thanks for sharing that, Brad. I, uh, I'm sure you're gonna have great hunting season, but I'll be pulling for you and, and cross my fingers for you too. Thank you. I appreciate it. Enjoyed it. Me too. And good luck to you guys. Thanks. Good luck to you as well. All right. And that's going to do it for us today. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, I want to give you two quick updates. Number one, if you were listening to this the week it came out, that being, I don't know, the week of October 9th, be sure if you are in the area of Kentucky or Southern Indiana, Southern Illinois, Southern Ohio, anywhere in that neck of the woods, come on out this Saturday, October 14th. And join me and Mr. Giannis Putellis at our last Working for Wildlife Tour event. We'd love to see you down there. We're going to do some work collecting acorns for a native reforestation effort on the Daniel Boone National Forest. We're going to do some good work. We're going to have a great time. We're going to share some hunting stories, talk hunting tips and strategies, all sorts of good stuff while we're out there volunteering on public land. We'd love to see you spend a little time midday doing some good stuff out there. So, if you want to do that, if you want to join us, just go ahead and Google Working for Wildlife Tour Kentucky, and that will be probably the easiest way for you to find the link to the registration page with all the details and with the sign-up link. Hope to see you on Saturday. Number two, Tony wanted me to mention that the Foundations episode this week, which would be coming out on the, what date would that be? October 10th, it would have come out. That is very similar in theme to the conversation we just had here with Brad, kind of talking about ways to simplify and, and refocus your efforts during the hunting season and not chasing every squirrel running around in the distance. So good stuff to think about. I think our conversation here with Brad was a great reminder that sometimes you just got to stick to the fundamentals and do them well and do them consistently. That is a wise piece of advice. So hope you enjoy this one. Best of luck out there in the woods. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam 
can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on Seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.